You're listening to 101.9 FM, KPCRLP, Santa Cruz. Tony Duchesne here, and welcome to episode 161 of Drinks with Tony with my guest, Reba Merrill. Reba's new book is called Making It, What I Got Away With in Hollywood. So she interviews tons of celebrities, and she's been doing it since the 1970s as a TV talk show host, as well as in syndication uh, during press junkets. So it was a joy to talk to her. The master interviewer. Now, I've had my fill of celebrities over the years, and I have one story It's a bit funny. It was Steve Buscemi, I think around 2006, and I rarely did the press junket thing. I, I, it just, But this was for Drinks with Tony, and I, they're like, you got Steve Buscemi if you want them all. Well, okay then. Um, so what they did for radio interviews is you had two different um, radio show hosts go into the room, and, and we sat at either side of uh, Buscemi, and the NPR reporter got 15 minutes to ask questions, and then I got 15 minutes to ask questions, and then we can use the audio from the entire time we were in the room for, for our shows as clips. So the NPR reporter went first, and the first question she asked was some really intellectual sounding question that I didn't understand at all. And Buscemi answered with, what? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, great. Here goes the energy of the whole room. So after she spent her time trying to sound intelligent, and it's like it, it's, the, it's the trying that's so rough uh, when you're just listening to someone trying to, trying to sa- just putting on errors of sorts. You know, it came to me, and Buscemi looked at me like he'd just gotten beaten up. So all the questions I had in mind, they were just wiped out the window. And I asked, so how do you deal with doing press junkets? How do you get through these things? And his face totally softened. And he told me that he tries to connect with whoever he's talking to. And then we had a decent chat. And at the beginning of the show with Drinks with Tony, you hear authors say, hi, it's me. And you're listening to Drinks with Tony. So I asked him to do that. I said, I asked him if he can do the ID, and he said, I don't like to do that, and I prefer not to. And I said, okay. And then he said, that's it? And I said, what's it? He said, you're okay with that? And I'm like, I'm not going to make you do something you don't want to do. And then he gave me the ID. And And I said, Steve, you just gave me the ID. And he smiled at me with his lovely grin. Hi, I'm Reba Merrill. And I'm having drinks with Tony. Get on the drinks with Tony show. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Reba Merrill. She's the author of Making It, What I Got Away With in Hollywood. Reba, how are you? I am just fine for a Monday morning. Yes. And, and how did you, how do you get away with making it in Hollywood? I want to know the whole story. No, just half the story, a third of the story. People need to buy your book. (laughs) Well, I think the best way to describe it is that nobody wanted me. I was doing a local morning show, the happiest I had ever been in my life. It was the perfect match for me because I, I like getting up early and I like thinking quickly. So when you were, when you were doing the morning show, this, well, this was in Phoenix. Is that where that was? 
I started in Phoenix, but I ended my career in San Diego for CBS. And, and so when you're doing a morning show, how on do you have to be and how much prep is coming in? Like are there segment producers where you kind of have some prep and then by the time you get a guest or, or you really have to be on and kind of like intense I, for the hours. I was told what, who I was going to interview. And then I did the prep. I did my own makeup. I learned how to do makeup. I learned how to fix my hair because CBS in San Diego might be a really big deal station, but for the morning show, which was the biggest show, I have to say what it is, was, sorry, I forgot, I'm not there. It replaced Captain Kangaroo. The network was carrying Captain Kangaroo from eight to nine because they didn't have a morning show at the time. We're talking about 1976. It's okay to talk numbers because I'll even tell you how old I am. And it was really a big deal because we were bigger than, than the Today Show. <laughs> you kicked Captain Kangaroo off the air. Single-handedly. I did the station. <laughs> no. That was the determination. And I loved it. I'll tell you what was interesting. And then I'll go back and answer your question. But I did all the work myself is that in those days, the studio used our show, because it wasn't LA, it was San Diego, to send down their biggest stars before they sent them to New York to practice doing a live show. And not to embarrass them in case they made some mistakes. That's why they didn't use LA. So I got to meet Peter Finch before he died. I mean, three weeks before he died, when he was already nominated for an Academy Award. And Beverly Sills. I mean, I got to meet people that I didn't though would ever come into my life. And I got to be on my first press junket. I didn't get press junkets when I, when I was working in Phoenix for the ABC station. So, see, so it was a big deal. It also polished my act. I thought I was, I knew how to interview, which I did, but I didn't, this was more pressure, definitely more pressure. And I guess the secret of who is Reba and how she made it, I do like pressure and I do like fear. I do. Yeah, the, and it, it's, there's something interesting because because I've been doing I've been doing this thing for a while and interviewing people and uh, for I mean almost 20 years right <laughs> and it's just like the um, there's a beauty to the pressure of it and there's and it's also I'm learning the more I talk to people I I kind of um, I kind of don't care as much about the outcome but more about the the immediate connection we're having at this very moment. I and totally yeah, do I, was that like the same for you where you, you really cared about the outcome at the beginning and that was, and that was like worrisome. And then after a while, you're like, wait, this needs to be right here. This needs to be right now. Well, I got that out of my system in Phoenix and I was really lucky because on the fourth show I did in Phoenix, and this was an afternoon show for $25 a show. I just wanted you to know what a big deal I was. Yeah. And that's how I started at two o'clock on Wednesday afternoons. But the thing is on the fourth show, once a week, uh -huh. Hugh Downs 
came in and I interviewed him live. Wow. And I realized that my questions were better than his answers because I had done an amazing amount of research. But the truth of the matter is I didn't hear the answer. I was too busy concentrating on these amazing questions. And then I put my clipboard down because I was told, uh, I thought that you couldn't do a talk show unless you had a clipboard, but I put it down. And I looked at him and I said, teach me how to interview. And he did. What, and then he came back, what, yes. Do you remember a couple of his, um, a couple oh, yes. of his advices? Yeah. Okay, well, the, the biggest thing is when, where, why, and then gets the good stuff. Let your curiosity lead you and do a lot of research. I had I like some that. of those things down. And then he came back six months later because when you do a local show, his wife had a knitting store and just saying Ruth Downs, you know, was kind of uh, celebrity by sleeping. I mean, celebrity by sex, I guess. She was. <laughs> I didn't I did know a celebrity, celebrity by sex. I've been doing it wrong all these years. <laughs> and so he came back with her because that's where their new home was. He was still flying to New York to do 2020 with Barbara Walters, just so you know the time frame. Right. And, he, and after the show was over, he said to me, and it was only me, I didn't have a co-host then. And he said to me, do you know how many people ask for advice, and I said, I'm sure a lot. And he says, do you know how many people follow it? And I said, I have no idea. He said, very few, but you did. You are becoming an interviewer. And I held on to that. It was the beginning, it was the foundation that I used to, to move on and up. And then they gave me a five day a week show called Good Morning Arizona, it's still on the air. And I had a co-host and I'm going to tell the story because, and then I'll get to how I made it. But the story is interesting so that we set the tone for what it was like to be a woman on local television. The only reason they hired me was the national organization for women was going to pick at the station. They didn't have a woman on the air, not one. Then that's got to feel like pressure because you're like, wait, I have to represent all womankind in Phoenix? They, uh, uh, they didn't tell me. Oh, okay. They didn't tell me until much later. <laughs> after I had worked myself up to $100 a show, they told uh -huh. me. Yeah. Then they gave me five days a week, and I got back to being paid $25 a show. <laughs> You, you know that show, you know that show you do one day a week now it's five days a week well it's the same budget as one day a week <laughs> but this time I did really did everything because my co-host co-host was really a newsman he would come in do one interview and and then well it was a half hour show so he didn't stay very long I I found out what he was getting paid, which was $375. And I went to management and I said, I want to be paid like Don. And they said, oh, you don't understand. He has a wife and children to support. And you have a husband. Wow. Welcome to television. Yeah. It's not like the morning show with Jennifer Addison, but in a way it is. Because as when I moved to San Diego, there was much more action. There was, I had a co-host who approved of me 
because I have a short body and long legs. So when I sat down next to him, he was much taller than me. And when I stood up, all I had to do was take my shoes off because they never looked at our feet. Uh-huh. But he was ruthless. I, you know, you're looking at me, you're talking to me. I'm just happy to have the job. Yeah. He was so threatened by me that he did things that it took me a long time to find out. Like when anybody called, he intercepted the call, he intercepted the mail. And finally, some lady caught me really fast after I came off the air. And she said, who the hell do you think you are? And I said, what? I'd been there about five months. Yeah. And I said, I don't know what you're saying. She says, do you know that I keep calling and trying to invite you to come and be our guest speaker at our luncheon? And you've never returned my call. And that's how I found out. And I confronted him. He didn't, I have to tell you, he didn't like me, but he couldn't get rid of me. It's interesting. And they, this, because it's really weird in this, I'm learning this as I go in life, but people are threatened by people who are enjoying themselves. And, and they, and this ruthlessness, so-called ruthlessness is just massive insecurity. And what a sad way to live a life. It just well, blows my mind. This way. He went on to sell cars once we were fired on the same day and I went on to Hollywood to make it. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Victory. <laughs> oh, it's great. So you want to know how I made it? Well, I well, made it well how, the- so. From San Diego, what now? What what brings you to Hollywood? What what was the okay? I mean, did you did the show end and then you were no the show okay. is still going on. no now the show is over, but okay. the show is going on. Um, I knew that we were going to get fired because they cut off the books, and I always read the books before I did an interview, which blew away the guests to the point that they loved me because no the time to read the book. So we, they stopped giving us books. And I said to him, we're going to get fired today. It was a Friday. And he said, no, we're not. So at the end of the show with the chit chat, I said, I want to thank everybody for being so nice to me in San Diego. I came here a stranger and I really feel like I belong now. And this has been the greatest experience of my life. He didn't say a word. We got fired right after that. So I went out with a little dignity. At least it was good for me. I loved that show. I never would have gone to Hollywood if I didn't go to work for Cox because the guy that wrote the biggest um, entertainment column in San Diego called me and he says, you're good for one day. I'll interview you. (laughs) And so he says, what are you going to do? And I said, I don't know. And then I started getting rejections. So I went to the local um, cable station, you know, and they have access. Mm-hmm. And I said to him, do you want me? Cause I was famous in San Diego. I had been there three years. Yeah. I was famous. You know, I like being a, a big fish in a small pond. Uh-huh. I mean, I really do. Hollywood would never appeal to me. And so I went and I did the show and it was way before Oprah discovered that talking to real people who had problems, who figured out how to get over their problem, under their problem or around their problem 
and, and get a solution was what I wanted to do. And so I did that. And I didn't know that the man I was working for was a born again. And when I had on lesbians, he went absolutely crazy. I come off the air. I was doing five shows a day, once a week for $50 a show. Obviously money was never, I, I wanna get that clear. Money never pushed me into anything I did. It was always passion. And he says, God does not want these tramps on the air. And I looked at him in full makeup and said, I didn't know I had to answer to God the whole time. I thought it was the SEC. <laughs> and he fires me. Wow. Irony, wait a minute. The irony of all this, one of the interviews, it wasn't with the lesbians, but it was an interview I did in that series called That's Life, goes on to win a local Emmy. And I not only win that for the man that fired me, but also for the television show that I was up against my old show. Yay! Oh, this is great. And, and I just love that passion. It's about the passion, the passion in life. You know, sometimes so it, it just kind of blows my mind sometimes, even in Hollywood, where it's just like, it, sometimes it looks glamorous. But at the same time, I look at that, some part of it, and I go, I'd rather just go back to working in tech because it feels the same. It feels just empty. There's emptiness. But when we have passion for it, when, when we find our fellow freaks that are passionate about it, that's when everything is just beautiful and opens up. So that's how I decided to go to Hollywood. I had a conversation with my mirror. I, have a, I had a big mirror on the wall. And I said, okay, stop shooting yourself in the foot. What do you really do well that you know you can do? And I said, interview. Okay, why is it that you've just gotten 17 rejections? What do you think the problem is? And I said that I'm 45. And so what would happen if you could do an interview and nobody could see how old you are? Would that solve this problem? And I, I realized that's what I had to do. Now, thanks to CBS, I, I, I alluded to the fact that they had sent me to Hollywood to do press junkets. So I knew that what I really wanted to do was an off-camera interview. And if I could convince the studios to let me get on their press junket, then I would have a, a I, not a career. I wasn't thinking of a career. I just wanted a job. And I thought the only way a studio would want me is if I supplied a lot of other studios. I didn't even have the big words like build a television network. I wasn't, I'm not going to sit here and tell you I had a, I didn't even have a plan. I just knew that that could be the entree to Hollywood. I did have a man that believed in me. He lived in New York. He, CBS was one of his clients, and he was responsible for getting us big New York stars that came to San Diego. Actually, they came to LA and then he pushed them down into San Diego. 
And I called him and I asked for help. I asked for two things, a place to sleep, because my husband said that this was foolishness and that he was not gonna give me any money to do this. I did have my unemployment money because I was married, so I didn't have to spend it, I had saved it. And so he got me a place to sleep at a famous Hollywood casting director. And all I had to do was pick up her cleaning and do her grocery shopping. That was it. And then the couch, a pullout couch. I just want you to know that I lived in a penthouse on the beach in San Diego, right across from SeaWorld. So I wasn't hurting for anything, but this, but didn't matter. A hideaway couch was more than I expected. The second and when, thing- And then, was, so this, this husband, this unsupportive husband, where is this husband now? <laughs> no, 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 I stayed married. Oh, you did. Where he is this away. lovely husband now that you still have? <laughs> uh, he passed away three years ago. He oh, okay. Okay. That's me. That's me asking the dumb questions. Great. <laughs> no, it's okay. I mean, he felt I had already done enough in my career four talk shows and an Emmy. Yeah. And I just said I wasn't finished, that there was something inside of me. So I get to LA, He's, he puts me, this guy from New York, Milton, gets me onto the lot at 20th Century Fox. I wanna tell you, in those days, it was very easy to get on the lot. If your name was at the gate, they didn't you know, ask for your blood type and you didn't have, you didn't have to have anything. Yeah. Nowadays, you go to the lot, even to a screening, they go through your trunk, they go underneath your car. Okay, but this was 19, um, 1982. And so I, he gave me a book of television stations, a telephone, a free one. And a, and a room. I had it for five days. Went there every day like it was a job. Started calling from the ABC station first. I just went in alphabetical order, but I went through the top 50. I had New York, I had Chicago, I had Philadelphia, and I had network stations, which was very interesting. New York wasn't. New York was the, the independent WOR, but I had ABC station in. Chicago and I had the CBS station in Philadelphia. So I had 55 stations after I got through in a week. And all I said was, I will give you a movie star interview free. You have to open it and you can replace my voice. You will get a script. And they have to publicize it that you're getting it. That's it. So, so, um, so when you went to the press junkets, uh, did they, did they have the, uh, the, the, uh, celebrities on camera and then you were off camera? Is that how it worked? No. I mean, the thing is that when I went to the press junkets and I worked for CBS, we each had a camera. Okay. Okay. When I did this on the press junkets after over the initial of what I had done, second or the B camera, which did photograph me was really used as back sound. I mean, once I was cutting these for the 55 stations, which by the way, Tony, the 55 stations only lasted four months. 
because the NBC station saw what the ABC station had. You have to understand something. I started with Robert Redford, then I did Paul Newman. <laughs> Sorry. And then it just, and then it was uh, Jack Lemon and Cher and Jimmy Stewart. And it, it just went on and on. Some of those were one camera shoots because then the studio finally, Universal finally hired me to do <clears throat> films that had already wrapped. So that I was just off and running. I had no idea that what I done big deal it it was my way of surviving it was my way of working and then there was something else I did and and I didn't realize what I did till I wrote this book is that I kept saying I'm breaking all the rules because they had certain rules that when you're going on a press junket or when you're interviewing a star you know they only come out when they have something to sell mm -hmm is that you've got to talk about what they want to sell. But I came from a talk show. A talk show was different. You talked a little bit about who you are and then casually mentioned what you were selling. Yes. And that's what I did. And I started supplying these television stations and they're going crazy. When the first one came in, I knew, and it was with Dee Wallace for the film Cujo. Oh, wow. And I wasn't a business person. I offered the guy that got me that job gig half of whatever we made because I didn't know what we were going to make because he did it. And when the money came from Warner Brothers, he kept 90%. And this is what I did. I'm not that naive. I took the master. And I went and asked for help. I had met some people now. I had networked. And I went to one and I said, can you help me? And he said, no, I can't. But I'm going to send you to Arthur. <laughs> Arthur can help you. And Arthur picks up the phone and calls Andy Keene, who you're not going to know who he is. But he was the president of Kaleidoscope, which was the biggest trailer house in LA at the time. We're now talking about 83. And so Andy looked at my D Wallace, looked at the stations. I had put a postcard in the three quarter tape and they were saying, this is unbelievable. We want more, you know. And he says, okay, I have, I have a day on the set with Robert Redford for The Natural. Why don't you come and ask your little questions? And that's how it started. And then, so and at I, that point, you, you right. actually were getting on location while they were still shooting. That happened later. Yeah. For that one, it was because they were shooting and he was doing an hour special for ABC. But the next time, three weeks later, he says, I want you to go to Malibu and interview Paul Newman. Now that film had wrapped, it was called Harry and Son. And because he was the director and his leading lady was also his wife, it opened the door that I could ask him about his marriage. So I did. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I did. So I started breaking these rules. I didn't know I was breaking any rules. All right. I just did 
Tony, I did the only thing I knew how to do, which was to do a talk show interview, a morning show interview. And that's what I did. And connect in a different way. Um, yes. Because I mean, you know, like when you just, when you just said that you stayed, uh, that you and your husband stayed married, I'm thinking in my head, now I got to ask you, how do you make a relationship work for that long? You know, those are the things I want to, I'm like, wait a second. Cause I'm a divorced guy. So I'm like, how do you do that? Well, <clears throat> the thing is that I loved what I was doing and he picked up and moved to LA. Oh, okay. I'm not going to go into the dirty part of the book where what really happens in the marriage, because yeah. Let's put it this way. When he died, we were still married. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then, so, <laughs> okay, that's fine. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm not one of those hard interviewers that are trying to sink in. Um, I, it's great that you go, you know what? I'm not going there. And that's the, the, well, the thing is I wrote about it in the book. I just yeah. wanted, they, that was hard. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I was like, I was looking online, you've interviewed like Owen Wilson. And I mean, I was looking out, you know, trying to look up your clips and all these people that you've interviewed and you, and you've, um, and those went to many, many TV stations. I went to the TV stations mm -hmm. and I did this from 1983 to 1991. And then in 1991, two things had happened. Um, my mother was dying of cancer. And so I made up my mind that I was going to go see her. My parents lived in Denver and I went every three weeks and I was the company. When somebody called, yes, I had somebody answer the phone. I had somebody that edited. In fact, the editor was my daughter. She taught herself to edit and all that clips. Was she editing on Avid in those days? Those were the days where you needed yes. to be like in a room. There was... And she was fabulous. And actually the stuff on the website, she edited all those pieces. So the thing is that when people would call, I wasn't there. And by 1990, I was losing my company. I have to be honest. And I had made up my mind that I was gonna give up my office on Sunset Boulevard, get rid of the editing equipment and finish the few films I had by renting space someplace else just an edit bay. And then I did something. It's amazing. You do things, you don't know why, but I gave an offer to go to Russia <laughs> to shoot for no money, but all my expenses. And I decided to do it. And, uh, and, it, and it was an independent film, but I looked in the trades and there was also a film from 20th Century Fox shooting there. So I called Fox got in touch with the production company and they said, we'll open the door. You can shoot there too. Because I had enough sense that if I shoot the scenes of them making that movie, I'll be able to sell it to Fox when I get back. I, I, I was starting to be a businesswoman too. So I take the trip and I come and it was really great. It was so interesting. The wall was down film we did in Arkhangas, which is the top of Russia, which is the film I was hired to do, was funded by the mafia, <laughs> the Russian mafia. It was, I'm telling you, it was a great experience. And I always took my husband 
on all of the foreign trips and him part of the crew. So the all expenses, all expenses I... paid. Husband is on crew. <laughs> Perfect. Yes. My answering machine is blinking. And, I, and it's from a woman that I had known at Universal. And then she became the editor of The Hollywood Reporter. But we always stayed in touch. We had lunch at least once or twice a year. And she was, I felt a friend. And, and so she, this message says, I got this new job. I'm vice president for Fox. I have all this. We're, we're losing you. We're losing you for a second. You, you got the call from her. Uh, I don't even know I can pay. This is where my life changes. <laughs> we lost you there, Reba, for, for a we second. Lost so um, okay. we lost you there for a second. So domestic uh, does not. Go ahead. Well, domestic doesn't talk to international, and I was working for the domestic part of the studios. This was the international. So I go in, it was for the boys starring James Caan and Bette Midler. And I used somebody else's interview and the stuff that they never touched was my kind of stuff. So I cut the two pieces, they're called profiles and we, she sent them to her field and they played them. And she comes back and she says, my field is going crazy. And I said, why? She says, because you got the most airplay that we have ever gotten internationally. And you know something, Tony? That's where I belonged. I didn't have to go on a film set anymore. All I would do was go to a press junket. They would put makeup on me, futz with my hair if I wanted my hair done. And I'd sit there and just do an interview. And I loved it. And I didn't have to ship it. I didn't have to check on whether they liked it. I just turned it over to the studio. And are you ready? Oh, I'm so glad you're sitting down. I ended up supplying 60 countries, anywhere between three and 5,000 television shows every time I sent out an interview. Wow. And that's when I started getting the big stars because there was a point in my career where I serviced Fox, Sony, and Disney. <laughs> and I loved every minute I did. It's interesting. And, and you took, and you took the advice of Hugh Downs. And I, you know, I wonder if like all of that's uh, correlated because it, you, you were, it seems like you were just so passionate about how do I do this craft of interviewing and you were shifting and kind of keeping your ego out of it in a way and going, no, this, this is, it's almost like you were an athlete for interviewing and then you get there. That's <laughs> Can I blurb your next book? <laughs> She's an athlete for interviewing. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. The um and, and um and that and then so now um you you when do you realize wait a second I need to put a book to, book together about this because this feel this feels important to document. No. No, no. it doesn't happen that way. Okay. No, I didn't do that. Okay. I, I, 
I did this career for 23 years. Mm-hmm. And then I wanted to stop working. I was in my 70s. And so I turned everything over to my daughter. And she can do it. And then after I was home for about a year, I thought, oh, God. I think I want to do something else. So I took these interviews, which were all on video, found 45 that I loved and turned it into nine days of five interviews each and a story and proceeded to sell myself to the cruise ship lines. Oh, interesting. Okay. So, <laughs> so and, and you just got off a cruise too, right? You, you, I, yeah. yeah. So, so you were on a cruise for the, and what exactly happens? Wait, okay, wait. so, yeah. What? I, I sent them some of my interviews. I gave them three people from studios to vet me, and they started putting me on ships. You don't get paid, but they give you a free cruise. And then I realized that I didn't have anything to sell, and everybody was selling something. So, I wrote the first book, which was much more personal than called nearly famous because I was the only one in the room who wasn't famous. I mean, everybody was takes your breath away famous. And it was tales from the Hollywood trenches. And I did tell the truth. I told the truth about my marriage. I told the truth about my addiction to sugar. Uh, I told everything. I told about the men I slept with before I got married. This is my second marriage. Okay, so I figured I was finished. I was never going to do another book. I had this book. And so what happened is when I had done this for 10 years and my husband was very, very ill and the last year was hard because I kept going on these cruises alone because he would say he would go with me and at the last minute he would get sick. And I went by myself because the cruise people are very strange they you can't add a person once you give a name you can't change it and so and that had to be heartbreaking to get on the cruise alone and not i mean it was really hard yeah and i know i look like a flirt if you look at some of my interviews you swear i'm flirting with harrison ford gregarious (laughs) (laughs) and And so I told my agent that I never wanted to do this again. So I call up somebody that I know who happens to be a publisher, but he also is well-connected in in LA. And I said to him, I I want you to help me sell my book because I want to do it on land, what I did at sea, because I'm not going back anymore. And then he said, oh, he read my book and he said, okay, it's quite good. But she was very surprised, but I got a great Kirkus review on that book. And so I start to figure out where he's, what I want to talk about to do this in, in LA. When he comes back and he says, how many interviews do you have? And I said, I don't know. And I wasn't being a smart aleck. Yeah. I really didn't know, but I went to the company that digitized my interviews which by the way, my interviews are now part of the Motion Picture Academy archive. And eventually someday the museum is going to play them. I just went to the new Holly, 
um, Motion Picture Academy Museum and realized I know places they can play my stuff. Uh-huh. So he said, I said, I came back and I said, I, I guess I have 500 that's at least digitized. And he says, how about writing a book about ju- the stars? Because the first book isn't about the stars. It isn't the real, these are the real interviews, the interviews that no one has ever been, have access to. Because I had 90 minutes with Jimmy Stewart, the last video interview he ever did in his life. And I used six minutes, that's all. And I had an hour with Cher and used three minutes. An hour with Meryl Streep and used three minutes. What he had done is he went to the Frankfurt Book Fair and took a, a, and said, I've got this book of movie star interviews. What do you think? And the response was so great that he drove me insane to write this book. In case you didn't see it, there it is. And yes, it looks like Harrison Ford is eating me for breakfast. It was a, it was a junket interview, his first one. That's in the book, the real Harrison Ford interview from 1977 is in the book. And that, and that, and that was before he was big time Harrison Ford. This was exactly, let me tell you something. I, he acted like I was his best friend and, and, and he said my name and they never say your name on a junket. They don't, they never know who you are. On a well, they're getting the same questions over and over again from different newspapers who just want to, yeah. comes to me, because <laughs> I'm not too bright. I don't ask them anything about making the movie. <laughs> so I said to him, who's Harrison Ford? <laughs> because I didn't know. He yeah. said, well, this is Harrison Ford, only in better clothes. <laughs> I was a little embarrassed about that interview. It's interesting. It's the only one that ever survived from the television show I did in San Diego. The only one. And I decided I, sh- I played it for my grandson, who's grown up. He's not a baby. And he said, Grandpa, you got him to talk. He, he saw the video. And I got over it. I got over that I was so busy looking at me and how I was, what I was wearing. I didn't like my hair from that era. I was wearing the Dorothy Hamill. <laughs> God. Um, I, lo- I loved your look. I was like, I, I saw that photo before you just showed me, and I'm like, oh, that looks so cool. So, it was, but it's called the Dorothy Hamill, the the, yes. uh, the Olympian uh, haircut. You probably weren't born when I was doing all this stuff. <laughs> but the thing is that that's how making it what I got away with in Hollywood came out. And so there are the real, honest interviews. The only thing that I edited out of the interviews was a lot of talk about pushing the movie because it, to me, it wasn't that interesting. This is what I figured out. I have to say that I owe a great deal to a woman at, and it's not easy to say that this woman ha- was a vice president at Universal and there just, just weren't any at the time. We're now I'm talking about 83, actually closer to 84. And she told me what she wanted. This, the stations told me what they wanted, but she told me, the client, what she wanted. She said, I don't care what you talk about, just get a lot of clips in. And so I created what made me famous on these profiles, an Oreo cookie. And 
And I answer, I got into acting because I went to the drama club because that's where the pretty girls were. I got into acting because I did school plays and realized I liked it. It was, everybody had something. Everybody had a story and I was looking for an I story because the station said to me, we will take your hype if you humanize it. So I start open with an I. The center is heavy pushing of the film. And the end was, can I give you Harrison Ford's ending from this interview I did on um, Air Force One. And he said, I have the best job in the world. And then when I got on the cruise ships, I used that because I was always my end of the five guys that I was showing. And I'd look at that audience and I'd said, no, I had the best job in the world. <laughs> I mean, so the world is now going to see my flaw. Actually, what they're going to see is that I'm not too brilliant. It really boils down to I used a lot of the same questions over and over because everybody has a different story. It didn't matter. When I asked about fame, you know, everybody told me something different. There's a beauty to not, there, and it's, I don't think it's about smarts. I think it's about human connection. And, and there, I, you know, I, there is, people try to cut, you know, I listen to interviewers and I could tell they're trying to sound, especially people interviewing authors, they're trying to sound like they're, yeah. And it's just, and I'm like, it, that just bores me. I, I, I want to hear the mistakes. I want to hear, you know, I want to, I want to be able to uh, ask a stupid question and someone go, that's a really stupid question. And I'll be like, Ann Bancroft said that to me. She says, why are you asking that question? You should have said that. Yeah. You're just like, okay, let's adjust. (laughs) You know, I I don't, I don't take it as like a, uh, you know, what do you call it? Um, A shot at me. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, that's not working for us in this moment. Great. Well, let's just turn this around a little bit because. You know, so the thing is, but also you see that there is, which I never thought anybody would ever catch on to what I was doing, is that there was a pattern to my interview style. And I, and, and especially when I got on the junkets, the last part of my career where I didn't have an hour with people. I did have 20 minutes with Harrison Ford on Air Force One. And I did with Al Pacino. But the thing is that most of the time I had 10 minutes and I had to get it all in in 10 minutes, which I liked. I did a lot of research. I'm going to give you an example. Um, give me some help because I didn't, I would not know how to do that. <laughs> I um, spent a lot of time. This is before the internet at the Motion Picture Academy doing the research for the interviews. And for some reason, I don't know why. I went to the Motion Picture Academy to do the to get the research on Sean Connery. And I was going to interview him for a film that he did with Wesley Snipes. And please don't ask me the name because half the time I can't remember. And I go to the junket and up comes Harrison Ford's publicist and says with her finger in my face, you cannot ask him about James Bond. And I was crushed because I'm gonna go on record, even though I've seen them all, I found that he was my favorite Bond. Yeah. So I go in 
knowing that, so my first question was the characters you play all seem to have the same, the same characteristics like wit and charm and whatever. I had the list in front of me. And he, and he says, well, I like to think that they represent who I am. And we're talking and I'm never asking him about Bond. And then I said to him, is it true when you did The Man That Would Be King, here's the research I found, that you danced with Michael's driver because he was better looking than yours when you went into the clubs? And he starts to laugh. Now, I want to say this as an aside. Their wives were there, but this was Morocco and they weren't, the women were not allowed in the clubs. So they each went with their driver because they didn't stay at the same place. They each had houses. And so he starts to laugh. And he said, that's true. Like he couldn't believe that somebody found this obscure piece of information. And before I could take a breath, he proceeds to tell me a story. Is that doing that film, he liked to drive himself home. And he went home with his costume on and he had, he had the caftan on. He had still had the makeup on, but he took off the turban. And he drives into what he called the men shooting the bullets. That's what he said. And they pull him out of the van. And I'm listening and I gotta tell you, so it's a miracle because I know that this is magic, magic. And he says, and they grabbed hold of me and I don't speak Moroccan and I don't speak French and I'm pretty sure I'm never gonna get out of here. And then somebody in the back said, James Bond. <laughs> I kept my mouth shut because yeah. he said that, wait, I didn't say anything. He said, all right. I'd still be there. That's what he said. Okay, so now I thought, ooh, maybe the door is open, but she's sitting in the room and I have never had a publicist sit in the room while I do an interview, never. Oh, it drives me nuts. I, won't, I will never do that again, yeah. So I don't know what to do. So I ask another question totally about this career, how different it is from Bond. That's what it is. I asked a, career, okay. a question of, and then he finally looks at me and he says, why are you avoiding Bond? And I said, because I was told I couldn't ask you about it. And he says, what do you think I would do to you? And I said, kiss me. And he bursts out laughing. And I thought, okay, the door's open. I'm gonna go in. And I said to him, you know something, when you did James Bond and you said your name, James Bond, I always thought you said it for me. And he says, but of course I did. And he gave me the bond, of course I <laughs> I'm so excited. And then I end the interview by asking him about fame. And he gives me some, well, this is when we do this. It's certain that yeah, he didn't give me one of the best names. And I looked at him and I said, you want to know what fame is? I'm looking at you. I have goosebumps and butterflies. That's fame. She punishes me for that Bond thing that I asked him that he said Bond and I felt like he said it for me. And she was very powerful at the time. So she kept me from 
getting films. But here's the backstory to this. The next film that Connery was doing, and she was the publicist, she went to the studio, which happened to be Touchstone, which, you know, belongs to Disney. And by now I'm doing all of Disney's live action and said, Sean Connery personally doesn't want Reva Merrill to do the interview. Sean Connery wouldn't have known me if he fell over me. Okay. Right. Yeah. I was one of 50 journalists doing the interview that day. Well, the studio wasn't going to put up with that crap. Okay. It's a big film. And they knew that I was delivering the goods. So we had some man ask my questions to Sean Connery. And I did the other four interviews. Wow. She never knew. She knows now because I put it in the book. Yeah. But eventually she fired and I start. And then I, and then I was, you want to know I'm nasty. Okay. Just so <laughs> you know, I don't want you to be. Okay. So what I wrote in my first about this is that I wrote that quiet list got slimmer and she got fatter. Oh. <laughs> See, I'm not nice. Yeah. I must tell you, Tom, it really made me feel good. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, it's it. Yeah, it's uh, wait. You know, it's it's interesting. I really liked how you answered, how you kind of answered what fame is for him about you having goosebumps and butterflies, and it's uh what what, but you know besides him, I mean, and, and even him, what? How do you? How do you, when you're going to someone that famous and someone that gorgeous like Sean Connery, where you're just like, he if you look at him. Wait, he didn't have hair and I didn't know that. I didn't know that he wasn't wearing a toupee. He didn't have any hair. He's, he's had a toupee for the first, for every movie, he wears a toupee, including the early Bonds. Wow. So then how do you not keep your eyes from going to his bald head? Because I was looking at his eyes. Exactly. <laughs> so, wait before before you're going in, what like what are the emotions where you're trying to just keep it together and go? Okay, I have my list of questions, and then, like like how how do you keep yourself from just die from go, from totally melting in in front in front of some of these people who are are absolutely you know I where I've. I've kind of been in the situation too, where I just like, I'm totally freaked out. And then, but what do you do once you're in front of them? How, how do you shift? Well, partially because I'm a fan first, the little giggle girl takes over. And I use the excitement and the butterflies to get out the first question. Once I have the first question out and I always write the first question. Once I do that, I just fly by the seat of my pants. And it becomes a conversation like what we're having. I mean, I'm excited. I am so excited to be here. You have no idea. I do because I get, I'm just as excited. This, this excites me to no end to do this. So it's just, um... And, the, and it's interesting you bring up the first question. I Like years ago, I did stand up for a couple of years and I was trying to hone an act. And it was always that first, yeah, that first laugh. And then you feel like you're, you're not going to die. You still feel death is imminent, but you don't feel like you're not going to. And then it's everything kind of like 
keeps it going. You know, it's just, there's something about just getting through that first one and that little bit of um, validation coming back at you. And then it's just like, Oh, okay. (laughs) All right. So what else do you want to know? Everybody always asks me who's your favorite, but you can ask me anything. Well, it's, it's hard. Well, there's two things about who's your favorite, because when you go in, you think your favorite is somebody else. And then, and then you find out that the beauty of um, the beauty of discovery is finding out, Oh wait, that person is my favorite. And I might not have liked them so much before, but they're such a great, was there anyone where you're just like, you know what? Uh, uh, Why would I do this person? And then you go in there and you're like, Oh my God, that was amazing who was that person did you ha- do you have well, one of those in mind of course it was really interesting it was johnny Depp. really i went in with full attitude did not like him at all and the first time i interviewed him for a disney project was my captain movie yeah, the really obscure one. I think that was an indie, right? That was like, yeah. yeah that was. <laughs> so Pirates of the Caribbean, everybody was making fun of it before we saw it, especially even the journalists. My goodness, Disney has, Disney has gone off the deep and they're doing a ride and turned it into a movie. Right. Had- that, and that's and that's absurd. It's like, it, it's... The, the absurdity, like now everyone's just, now everyone in hindsight is like, oh yeah, I knew that. But you you put a, you, you make a ride into a movie. I, if you think about it, it's one of the stupidest things to do. And then here we are. But then I saw the movie and I had a really good time. And <clears throat> so the movie gave me a good time. But Johnny, because I did all that research and he wrecks hotel rooms. And I know. Too much And he has too many girlfriends. And I was already a woman of a definitely a certain age. And I thought, oh, he's been given so much and he's just awful. So I go in with my first question, which God knows I can't remember. I could look it up because I have him in the book. And something starts to happen. And he's charming me with these answers, which I didn't expect from him. And in this particular setup, his suite was huge, like a presidential suite. And where they had the cameras was so bright. And I walk out into the next room which was so dark, I couldn't see anything until my eyes got adjusted. And all of a sudden I see this white haired man. I saw the white hair and a hand came out and he says to me, he really liked you. And I said, how would you know? He says, because I've heard every interview he's ever done, especially on this junket. And he never told those stories to anybody. And I thought, isn't that nice of his manager or his publicist or his agent to say that? Because I would never say that publicists were nice. Right. Yeah. And so I went and I looked at the interview and it was remarkable. I mean, he said things like I said to him, something about acting. And he said, 
I don't know why anybody would be interested in me. I tell lies for a living. And I thought, what a great line. That's, he's, he's saying somebody else's words. He's not saying his words. I mean, I started to put two and two together what this interview was all about. And I was fascinated. So I never knew who the man was until I saw the premiere of the first Pirates of the Caribbean. And it was in at Disneyland on Main Street with a red carpet to match. And lo and behold, as Johnny, who just who made up his mind that he didn't care about all the television studio, uh, not television, television shows that were up there, you know, the press, he was going to play to the crowd that were the fans. It's a very impart, important part of who he is. The fans are the most important, not the press. And lo and behold was the little man with the white hair. And guess who he was? His Masada trained security guard. Oh, wow. And yes, he sat through every interview. The interview is utterly amazing what he says. Do you think do you think that he vibed that you kind of came in with a little bit of disdain and he's a, and he was like I have to get this woman or I got to turn her around. Well, it's either that or I reminded him of his mother. He did like his mother. Mm-hmm. He did not like his stepfather. Mm-hmm. And so that's why he left home at 17. Yeah. And there's a story about his stepfather in the book. You know, I used, I've done extra, I've done, as, as I'm in LA now, I've done extra work on sets, you know, the, the, the extra guy, well, you, you know, central casting, uh, we, we need, we need a dirty, dirty looking guy with a beard for the bar scene. That's essentially everything I got. And, um, but I, I was on one where Johnny Depp was, uh, it was Forrest Whitaker and Johnny Depp. And I had to do, a, I had to do a cross in front of Forrest Whitaker. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to be a focus for Forrest Whitaker. Of course they cut that out. But Johnny Depp was there and you could, you could just feel the whole room change. Uh, the, the, everyone on the set, because it was just like, everyone went silent and there was just, he, he's kind of this presence of like, it, it's kind of like, you know, oh, you're, you know, I'm a huge fan of Forrest Whitaker and just being, you know, I'm like, oh my God, this is great. And then he's there and it's kind of like the breath in the room just changes, you know, it's. Well, I want to say this about Johnny Depp and he's gotten a lot of bad publicity and I'm not going to go into it. He's really a nice guy. Um, when I did the interview for Pirates of the Caribbean 2, um, I did two things. There was a young girl, she was 13 years old or 12 years old and had seen the film 15 times, okay? And it just so happens that her parents were best friends with my daughter and her husband. And we let her come, I let her come down to the junket. She, and then I asked Johnny Depp's publicist if she could just open the door after I finished the interview, because I was the last person on that particular junket, if she could, if we could just let her look <laughs> at him. I mean, she was a kid. And I'll yeah. tell you that she, she's very tiny. She looked 11 or eight. She looked uh-huh. eight. She was already 13. 
And, and they said, yeah, and she did. I mean, her life will never be the same. And I asked if I could ask one more question. They said, yeah. And I walk out of the suite and the woman that changed my life when she went to Fox International was now at Disney. She was the highest ranking woman at Disney doing global publicity and fired me as I walked out in front of everybody because I asked the extra question and let that 13 year old look at him. Wow. Okay? I asked the publicist because I thought the publicist is much more powerful than anybody. Not, not I, I mean, I had been in Hollywood 23 years. So here's what happened. So she years made a public later, display of it, like at the time? Yes. Wow. Yes. She had told me she was having a bad day. She had hot flashes. She wasn't getting along with her husband. But none of that had anything to do with me. She was just miserable that day and took it out on me. And there was no turning back because she did it in front of everybody. She never hired me again. So when Whitey Bulger came out, he was so proud of it that he did uh, a Q&A at the Academy. I'm an Academy member. And he did a Q&A at the Academy and somebody who was handling the film, a publicist, called me up and said, I want you to meet the executive producer of the movie. Well, of course I had my eye up on this. I realized that Johnny had to walk by me with the same publicist who, by the way, was nice to me. And, and once I was on that stage, I knew I was gonna stop him. And I did. And I said to him, I really wanna tell you what happened when I walked out the door after Pirates 2 and proceeded to tell him this story. And I told the publicist and she, I can't, I cannot repeat what she said because the words about this woman were not very nice, okay? And he says, can I do anything for you? And I said, I'd love to have a picture. <laughs> Wait, I get so nervous. I can't figure out how to, told you I was in net with technology. I couldn't figure out how to get the, get the camera in my iPhone to work. Oh my God. Some woman comes up, she says, I'm a photographer. Let me do the picture. It's yeah. on my, it's on my um, website, the picture. And, and he did it. I mean, he did it. And what a turnaround. Cause you went, cause you went in thinking this guy was a buffoon. And then now it's, it's, yeah. I love those stories because I love, I love finding out that I'm wrong, you know? I, I, that I'm wrong about a person. And when I, and it's just like, oh man, that per, there, there's been people, it, there's people in my life I'm friends with now that I didn't like when I first met them. <laughs> it's just like, but then you get to know them a little more and then there's some empathy. And then you're like, wait a second, there's, there's more to this there. And those become the, those become the better friends. It's, it's so strange to be open to, um, to having our minds change, I guess. Is, yeah. Yeah. Reba, how do you think I did on this interview? Because you're the you're the king, you're the queen interviewer. So now's now's the uh, question. What do you think? <laughs> I had to get off the phone. <laughs> I thought you were just taking a call and quitting the interview. <laughs> I was turning it off. 
I loved it. And I'll tell you why. I love an interview that's really a conversation. And my favorite thing to say, and I will give it to you as a gift. Please do. I need gifts. (laughs) The best things I ever got out of an interview is when I did the give to get. If I gave something from me, not a question, but a statement from me, like that was too late for Sean Connery, what I said about fame to him. But when I do it in an interview, in the middle of an interview, and I give something, which makes me vulnerable in the process, I get back uh, amazing stuff. And that's what you did. You did the give to get. I did? Yes. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much. (laughs) You're welcome. Reba, thank you so much for coming on. This has been great. To have a drink with Tony is every, it's more than I expected and better than I expected. And I want to embarrass you and say, please have me back again because this was fun and you fired my passion. Yes, great. Sounds good. It's on the record. Thank you. (laughs) Reba Merrill on Drinks with Tony. Check out her new book, Making It what I got away with in Hollywood. Next week on the show, we have Gabriel Hart. He'll be discussing his new book, Fallout from Asphalt Hell. He's also the songwriter and lead singer of JL Weddings. So come back for all the fun and I'll see you next week. Hey, keep reading books. It fills our souls. You're listening to 101.9 FM, KPCRLP, Santa Cruz.